right, let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather, and we thank you that we have indeed uh, found this treasure in Christ, or probably more appropriately, that we have been found by Christ, that in the prison and darkness of our sin and self-centeredness, Christ came to find us, and we worship you and we praise you for that. We thank you for the grace that we have received. And Lord, I pray that as we reflect on your word and what it reveals about you this morning, that you would minister to our hearts through your Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us, that you would uh, energize the weary, that you would lift up those whose hearts are heavy, that you would strengthen us for this journey, that you would remind us of your love for us and your power and your goodness and your mercy. God, that's a work that only you can do through your spirit. And so we do ask that you would do that in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bible with me to Genesis 19. And I I should probably just mention that uh, the annual meeting, we won't live stream that. So one reason why we encourage you to be part of that, uh, join us in person on church that day if you're able. And if for some reason you can't, but you'd like a synopsis of what we talk about you can email me, Grady at MaricopaSprings.com, and I'll let you know. So we weren't able to finish Genesis 19 last week, so I want to read just the concluding verses of that chapter uh, before we get on to Genesis 20. And man, I'm just really enjoying going through Genesis with you guys. This has been uh, a lot of fun. Um, I have this problem where I typically have to cut so much of my sermon each week, I'm sort of regretting biting off as much as I do with like a whole chapter. I don't know why I decided to do that when I was planning this out. Uh, I keep thinking we should do a Q&A after church so that you could engage and ask me questions and maybe I could touch on more of the things that I have to cut out of the message. Uh, but the reason why we don't do that is because we only have this building until one o'clock and we have to like clean up and get out of here. So this is just a shameless plug. Give to our growth fund so that we can build a building and then we can have a Q&A. And, but if you do have questions, I would obviously love to chat after service. Uh, if, if, you know, I say anything that you would like further clarification on or whatever, I would love to talk. Let's read um, 19 verses 30 through 38. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. All right, so this is a disturbing conclusion to the disturbing story of Sodom and Gomorrah at the end of chapter 19. 
And uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, although there probably is a lot that I could say here. But just remember that I've been telling us all through the story where we've encountered Lot, that Lot is a foil to Abraham. That's a literary term. He acts as a contrast to Abraham that highlights from Abraham, Abraham's righteousness. So Lot works as kind of like an opposite to Abraham. And he's, at this point uh, in, in the Genesis narrative, Lot is going to disappear. He's done after chapter 19. He's pretty much served his purpose, highlighting the righteousness of Abraham and kind of showing the really poor life decisions that Lot makes in this narrative. But before Lot goes, we get one final contrast here. Whereas Isaac is the promised son that God promised to Abraham and Sarah, conceived or who will be conceived because God made a promise and because God miraculously sovereignly opens the womb of Sarah to give birth to Isaac, what we see with Lot is that his progeny come about through more deceit, sexual perversion, exploitation. And although this is a a really small scene in the grand scheme of Genesis and the Old Testament narrative, it's actually kind of important because the sons of Lot mentioned here will go on through the story of Israel's history to be antagonistic towards the people of God. That's why I wanted to go back and touch on this scene real quick. Both the Moabites and the Ammonites enter back into the story of God's people after the Exodus in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. And just as Lot operated as a contrast to Abraham, who was God's chosen man, so the descendants of Lot will act as a contrast to the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites. They will be, uh, uh, you know, an opposition to God's chosen people. So much so that in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, God declares judgment upon these people and he says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly, assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. So I think we're left at the end of chapter 19, at the end of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot, with a kind of ultimatum. We can look at Abraham and we can look at Lot and we can see that there are really kind of two paths set before us. We can belong to Lot, we can go after his way, and we see that his life ends in ruin and humiliation because he loves the things of this world. Or we can follow after Abraham, who by faith trusted God, committed his way to the Lord, and as a result of that, was blessed. Okay, but for all of the praise that we heap upon Abraham, being a man of faith and a man of God, we're going to jump into chapter 20 now. And what we're going to see in chapter 20 is Abraham is going to repeat the same mistake that he made back at the end of Genesis chapter 12. Now, we were there quite a while ago, so maybe you don't remember, but it will probably become apparent as we read. Let's read Genesis 20 together. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, 
You are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see? That you did this thing. And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness that you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases, or where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, And also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah and Sarah Abraham's wife. So before we get to kind of my main thread this morning, um, I do want to chase a little bit of a rabbit trail that I think is important enough to justify going off topic a little bit. And uh, I'll be honest, I was sort of wrestling with should I do this this week? But uh, it has to do with Hebrews chapter 1, which, it, amazingly, I had no idea that Brian was going to mention that. So I, I sort of feel like um, there's a divine intent here. Notice that God comes to uh, Abimelech in a dream. And God speaks to Abimelech through that dream. And we see a fair amount of this throughout Genesis and throughout the Old Testament. God uh, appears to people in dreams and visions. He The text says that he speaks to people. We saw him show up in the form of embodied angels. Um, You know, when God speaks, I think we can assume probably that, that like it's a voice when God is talking with Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15. And then we see here in verse 7, God says that Abraham is a prophet. He uses that word to refer to Abraham. And a prophet is somebody, somebody who hears God and then speaks on behalf of God. And this stood out to me this week again, because the Old Testament is full of God speaking, and prophets who declare the word of the Lord, and God appearing to people in various forms. And today, there are people who claim that they are prophets. They claim they speak on behalf of the Lord. They claim that they hear God speak to them, 
and, uh, and that they are supposed to declare that word from the Lord to other people who follow them or listen to them. In fact, there's an organization right here in Maricopa, maybe you are aware of this, called uh, Patricia King Ministries. They have a building right across from the post office where they make videos. And Patricia King's YouTube video from two weeks ago where she is offering some prophecy, 66,000 views on YouTube. That's a lot. She claims that she's a prophet. She claims that she receives words from the Lord and she speaks those words over other people. She claims that she has revelations from God just like the prophets of the Old Testament. And the reason why I would say 66,000 people are duped by what she says is because they don't understand what the Bible teaches on this subject matter. They fall prey to her heresies and her false proclamations of words from the Lord, her scams, I would say, because they just don't know what the Bible teaches in regard to her claim that she is a prophet. So I want you to turn with me to Hebrews 1, where Brian prayed for us this morning. Again, I think it's more than a coincidence that his prayer moment lines up with my desire to touch on this this morning. And look, we don't put a limit on what God can do. God can do whatever he wants. Hang around our church long enough and you'll hear me say that kind of thing again and again and again. God is sovereign. He's king. He's accountable to no one. He can do what he wants. He can speak audibly to people or through visions and dreams. Of course, that is possible. We do not eliminate that as an option. I've even actually heard from missionaries, particularly in the Muslim world, that one way Muslims come to believe in Jesus is that they have a dream. And in that dream, Jesus says to them, you need to go read the Bible, or you need to find a Christian, or you need to go to that church, and there you will hear the truth about who God is. So that's possible. But what I want you to understand is that God has actually told us in his word how he chooses to interact with the world typically, normally. So it's important for us to understand this and respect God's typical preferred method for speaking, if you will. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. You already heard it, but it says, Long ago, this is the ESV translation, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the author of Hebrews is telling us that in God's unfolding plan of salvation, there was a point where he spoke to people through prophets like Abraham and Moses and Jeremiah. But now, now that God himself has stepped into human history, now that Jesus has come and he has spoken to us personally through his self-revelation, the position of prophet is over. I would say the position of prophet is over. Now the phrase that the ESV translation uh, chooses to translate long ago, another alternate translation, another way we could say this is formerly. 
formerly. And I actually think that that's a better way to understand what the author of Hebrews is telling us here. The definition of this word, palai, includes with it this idea of contrast. Formerly it was like this, not any longer, now it is like this. So God used to speak through prophets and prophecy, but now in contrast to how he used to do that, he speaks to us through his son. And what could a prophet of God possibly say to the people of God that would be greater than what God would say through his own beloved son? What word from God could be greater than the word incarnate that we have revealed to us through the scriptures? I would say to you, there is no word that could be greater than the word made flesh. And while God can, and I would even say God does, sometimes communicate to people through dreams and visions, that's always possible. Even throughout the Old Testament, even through all of Scripture, that has been the atypical, marginal, not normal way that God communicates. God's primary way of speaking has been through His Word, His Scriptures. Especially now that those Scriptures are complete as they reveal to us the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. So God has spoken to us as Christians primarily, most clearly, most powerfully through the incarnate word that is Jesus. And now that Christ has ascended to be with the Father and Christ is no longer with us in the flesh, God has given to us the spirit that lives in us that leads us to understand the scriptures through which he speaks. And it is through God's word and God's spirit that we as Christians can hear God speak to us. And so the point is this, just because the Old Testament has prophets and dreams and visions recorded in it, that does not mean that that's how God primarily relates to us now. That's how God did things formerly. But now God relates to us through his son. And I want you to understand this. In Hebrews 1, and I would say also in John 16, we're essentially told we don't need prophets and we don't need dreams and visions because God has spoken to us clearly through his word and he's given us a direct understanding of what he communicates to us through his spirit. And in fact, any one of us in this room is greater than the prophets of the Old Testament Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, that we're greater than the prophets of old, and the reason is because we have a revelation they never had, which is Jesus in the flesh, and the understanding of who Christ is through the Holy Spirit that gives us wisdom and understanding. So we don't need some woman with a YouTube channel to tell us what God says. We can simply go to God's word, which means, I, I guess in conclusion, that we should spend less time watching YouTube channels and more time reading our Bibles. Okay, but back to Genesis 20, because that's not the main point of what I want to speak about here. 
In Genesis 20, we find a scene where Abraham's wife, Sarah, is once again potentially compromised by Abraham's scheming. Just like back in chapter 12 in Egypt, a king sets his sights on Sarah and to protect his own skin and his own life, Abraham essentially surrenders her over to him and gives his wife to the marriage bed of another man. And I think this is a really interesting scene. If you remember back a couple of uh, weeks ago when Brian taught for us, he made the claim that Abraham is the most important figure in the Bible apart from Jesus. And so you have to ask the question, why in the world would the Bible include another whole chapter about one of the most central, important figures of Scripture speaking about his flaw again that he already was guilty of just a few chapters before? Why would Scripture elucidate for us this character deficiency in Abraham yet one more time? Why does the Bible seem to highlight the failures of Abraham when he's so important in the Old Testament narrative? And there are a few answers to that, I think. But one, I would say, is that the Bible is a historical book. It records history. It's obviously not an exhaustive record of history, or it would be much, much, much longer. But it is an accurate account of history, even when the accuracy of that account might make one of the figures who's important look like a fool, which I think is comforting because the Bible is showing us real human people with all of their blemishes and all of their flaws, and that's a blessing because we can read it and be like, man, I'm just like Abraham. I've made that kind of mistake twice. People are messy, and we see in the life of Abraham that people can be both courageous and cowardly. They can be faithful and faithless. They can be selfless, but also selfish. They can be heroic, but also pathetic. Any one of us fall into those categories. Even as someone as amazing as Abraham has moments of shame and embarrassment. And that encourages us because it reminds us that God is merciful and he's patient, even with people as foolish as me. But second, and more importantly, the Bible shows us this scene in Genesis 20 to direct our attention to the real hero of the Genesis story. Abraham is great in the story of Christianity, but he's not the hero of the story of the ages that the Bible unfolds to us. That spot we know belongs to God. And again, Abraham is lauded for his faith, but from time to time, he's also quite faithless. In this scene, yet again, we find Abraham trusting in his own clever devices, his own efforts to get him through a tricky spot, rather than trusting in the God who said, Abraham, I will be your shield and your reward will be very great. But Abraham did have faith, and he's to be commended for that. Even if his faith was small, let's say only the size of a mustard seed, he did indeed have faith. And his faith was placed in the right thing. It was placed in the sovereign God of all creation. And for that, he is to be commended. 
But the real point of the passage is that despite Abraham's best efforts to screw things up sort of again and again in the Genesis narrative, God promises to bless Abraham and God is faithful and God in this particular moment is protecting the lineage of Abraham, the promised son. And so the real point of this story is to teach us about God, that we might know him and trust him more. So I want to give you sort of four things that I think we learned about God from this passage. First, God ensures his promises. I've been alluding to this throughout, but within the Genesis narrative, Abraham comes very close to messing this whole thing up on multiple occasions. And this is one more instance of that almost happening. And once again, God sovereignly intervenes to make sure that the promised son, Isaac, is the particular son of Abraham and Sarah, as God said he would be. Remember, God recently appeared to Abraham and Sarah both in this narrative, and he has given a definite time frame to the fulfillment of his promise at this point. He said, within the next year, Sarah will become pregnant and have a son. Well, if Sarah were to end up in the bed of Abimelech, obviously that could complicate or compromise, I should say, the promise that God has made. And so God intervenes to ensure the promise that he made is fulfilled. And poor Abimelech, how would you like to uh, fall asleep one night and have a dream where the God of all creation shows up to you and says, you're a dead man, (laughs) right? Talk about nightmares. Talk about waking up in a cold sweat. That would be literally the worst night's sleep you could have. And notice the agency in verse 6. Verse 6, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God declares. He says that no power of man can thwart the plans that God has, that he's working into existence. God prevents any ruin of his plan. And more than that, God declares that if Abimelech had managed to sleep with Sarah, his sin wouldn't have been against Sarah or Abraham. His sin would have ultimately been against God. And the point here is, ultimately, that nothing can interfere with God's plan to fulfill his promises. God protects his promises. And because that is true, we can have great hope and great confidence in the things that God has promised to us. Now, we've been touching on this theme throughout the last couple of weeks, but the Apostle Paul picks up on it in Romans 8. And so let me make you flip there, because I want you to see this. Paul picks up on this idea as it pertains to the promise that God makes to love his children. And this whole chapter, Romans 8, is powerful, but we're going to pick up in verse 31. In regards to the promise of God's love, the Holy Spirit tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 31... If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, 
who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the promise Paul directs us to. Friends, God has promised to all of us who have turned in repentance and placed our faith in Jesus Christ that he will love us and that his love is secure and nothing can interfere with his love. No power in heaven or on earth can interrupt what God has promised to do in his love for his children. Praise God that not even you in all of your Abrahamic failures and foolishness, you cannot even interfere in God's promise to love you to the end. Our God ensures his promises come to pass, including his promise to love us in spite of our sin. Second, going back to Genesis 20, we're reminded that God alone has the power of life and death. God alone has the power of life and death. In verse 7, God declares that if Abimelech doesn't give Sarah back to Abraham untouched, then Abimelech and all who belong to him will die. Then in verse 9, Abimelech uh, refers to his entire kingdom sort of being dragged into this thing. I think that means that God's threat is not merely for Abimelech and his whole immediate household, but also for all the people under his rulership and authority, his whole kingdom. Remember God's authority to overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah and the entire valley of people that were acting in wickedness. In his wrath, God killed them all. He took away their life because God has the power of life and death. And then this chapter ends with verse 18 where we're told that God closed all the wombs of the household of Abimelech until Abraham prayed and God restored them. Meaning that God severed the possibility for the creation of new life among the household of Abimelech. Now I saw an interesting article uh, this week that claimed that scientists are on the verge of uh, basically growing babies in an artificial womb. They're about to create an artificial womb where babies can be created without the need of a mother. And it sounds like some kind of disgusting horror show, scientific horror show to me. But even an artificial womb does not diminish God's power to create life, not in any way. God creates the soul. And a human is not a human without a soul. God brings the totality of the person into existence. God brings together the sperm and the egg so that they form a human being with a heart and a mind and a character and a personality. God gives to man the breath of life. And there's no life in man apart from the work of God to give life to man. 
but probably more significant for us because of sort of recent historical events, God not only creates life, but friends, you understand that God determines when life ends. That is his prerogative, his rule, his right. Hundreds of millions of people over the last two years have spent lots of time locked down, quarantined at home, not just because of government mandates, but many of them because of choice, because they've been fleeing the fear of death, because they don't want to catch coronavirus and die. These are people who've been cowering in fear because death is lurking out there somewhere, and they want desperately to do whatever they can to avoid encountering it. And we've seen our nation and even our entire world respond to this virus with a visceral fear of death. And it's true that you could possibly die from the coronavirus. And I would say that it's good to try and prolong your life with whatever means you have, medicine and doctors and things like that. And let me remind you that our church has had a close encounter with this reality recently because our friend and fellow church member Ron Richardson uh, has been on a ventilator down in Tucson in a hospital in the ICU for almost two weeks or more, more than two weeks. And we know that at one point in the coronavirus to go on a ventilator was almost certainly a death sentence. Uh, I went to see Ron on Wednesday. He's far from fully recovered, but he's doing much better. And uh, I would like to think that that's because we interceded and prayed and God heard our prayers and he was merciful and uh, Ron will hopefully be coming home to us very soon. But here's what I want you to understand. You can spend your entire life trying to avoid death, but you will still die. It is unavoidable. More than that, you will die at exactly the moment and in exactly the way that God ordains it. You can hide away at home in a hazmat suit to try and avoid the coronavirus, but a heart attack or a house fire could find you there. You cannot escape from the God who has power and authority over life and death, to give life and to take it as he pleases. And this is a hard subject matter. I don't mean to be calloused or cold or morbid. Obviously, if you're here, you have not died, but it's possible that you have suffered through the loss of someone who is close to you. I'm trying to actually comfort you and give you great peace and confidence that God is in control of these things. Interestingly, um, as, uh, as I was working through this this week. Uh, sorry, this gets personal, so it does get emotional. Um, you, many of you know my wife has epilepsy, and um, she had a seizure last night, and in the grand scheme of things, it was not, not bad. But uh, I woke up this morning, and I found myself just reflecting like, man, if I hadn't been in the room when she called to catch her, she could have hit her head on the countertop. She could have died. I mean, anytime this happens, that's a possibility, right? 
Um, you know, with neurological things, it's complicated. She could just never wake up. Who knows? I found myself just plagued with this sense of, like, anxiety. And then I'm going through my notes, and I found myself thinking, do I really believe what I'm about to preach to my church? Right? I, I want you to understand that when I stand up here, I'm not just proclaiming to you things that I think that you should believe that I distance myself from. God was giving me an opportunity in my real life to say, Grady, you're going to go proclaim this. Do you believe it? And yes, I do. It is man's consequence for sin that man must suffer death. And God alone is the giver of life, and God alone determines when life begins and when life concludes. Job 14 says, Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. His days are determined, and the, months of his, or, and the number of his months is with God. And God has appointed his limits that man cannot pass. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, 27, Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is obviously no. And so for us as Christians, death is something that we simply don't need to worry about. It is indeed lurking out there somewhere for us. But God is in control of that. It's in his hands. We will die. We might die suddenly and tragically. We might die young or old. We might die through a very long process of illness. We might die surrounded by friends or alone. But however that happens, when that day comes, we will die in precisely the way that God ordains us to die. God's sovereign over life and death. And we must have faith, we must trust him that however that death comes about, whenever it comes about, God is in control of that situation as well. And there's nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. And of course, it goes beyond his sovereignty to ordain the moment and the way because we as Christians believe that this world is not all there is. Materialism is not the totality of human existence. There is a God who exists into eternity, who has ordained not merely our death, but for those of us who trust Christ, he has ordained our resurrection from the dead. We understand that for us, as awful as death is, it's only a kind of birth into a new everlasting life with no fear or tears or sorrow or heartache ever again. To leave this life is to be welcomed home by the Lord. Which brings us then to my third point regarding what this passage teaches us about God, which is that God has the power to bring forth beauty from everything, even from death. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 of Genesis 20 shows us that in spite of Abraham's wrongdoing, his sin, his failure, his manipulation of the situation, his lack of faith, his desire to control the situation, Really, I would say his failure to trust God. What does God do? God uses all of that to enrich Abraham even further. Abraham sins, but God turns it into a great blessing. More sheep, more oxen, which I don't even know why Abraham would want more of those at this point. He's already got a lot. More servants, more riches, a thousand pieces of silver from Abimelech. 
God is in the business, my friends, of taking our sin, our shame, our failure, and he's in the business of turning it into something beautiful. For Abraham, it was material wealth and riches. But for us, God takes our sin, our shame, our failures, and he turns it into spiritual blessings, spiritual riches. Now, this does not mean that we should intentionally go and sin so that we can say, look, God makes good things out of sin, and therefore it doesn't matter that I sin. That would be to abuse God's grace, obviously. But it does mean that we can look at the difficulties that we face, the hardships that we encounter, the sins that we commit against God, the mistakes that we make. We can look at all of those things, and rather than feel a sense of despair, that our life has become some kind of ruin or rubble, we can understand that through Christ, God is turning that into something truly beautiful. That terrible decision that you made, that awful sin that you committed that you still are plagued by, haunted by, that divorce that you suffered at the end of that marriage that you played your part in ruining, that job that you lost, that season of pain and heartache that you went through, that you just barely managed to survive through, God in his wonderful glory, he is in fact weaving all of that into a beautiful tapestry of his glory. And one day, one day we will get to see what that tapestry looks like. We'll get to see how all of that suffering was worked into God's plan for beauty. And you hear me say this a lot because it needs to be continually repeated. The greatest example of this is the cross. Always and forever, God took our sin and he turned it into our salvation. On the cross, God poured out his wrath for our sin upon his own son. That is ruin but by doing so, he gave to us in place of our ruin, grace, peace, life, liberty. I think I can safely say that there's probably some of you in this room right now, and you're thinking about different aspects of your life right now, and you are essentially saying to yourself, man, I've made a mess. And you feel distraught. You feel burdened. You feel like there's no way that any sort of seed of good could sprout in this. But I want you to be reminded, don't despair, don't give up hope. God does indeed take those things and he weaves them for our good, for his glory, for beauty, to enrich you and draw you closer to him. At every point that Abraham fails, God uses it to bless him. Now, again, don't abuse this grace. It would be better for you to walk in righteousness and wisdom. And if sin is a factor in your ruin that you're walking through, then repent of it, turn. But when and where you fail, remember God's power to redeem our failures, to bloom from those failures beauty and goodness and hope and redemption. God's power is so great that he works even the evil that we do for our good and for the praise of his name. Don't despair. Cling to the hope of that truth.
Finally, I want to close by pointing us to the power of God to forgive. Remember, this is not the first time that Abraham has made this mistake. This is a repeated problem in the Abraham of life. And we might wonder, why does God continue to love this man? Why does God not give up on Abraham? Why didn't Abraham learn this lesson last time? We might even point a condemning finger at Abraham and go, you dum-dum. Like, how could you do this twice? Like, do you even love your wife? Do you even have a shred of decency and integrity that you would treat her like this? Except that hopefully we're all self-aware enough to realize, like, we're no different than Abraham. Right? I mean, maybe in the way you treat your wife, hopefully. But, <laughs> but you have made the same mistake once, twice, ten times more. You know what God asks you to do, and yet you've not trusted him. Here's what I want you to understand about God's forgiveness. Each time that we sin against God, in the eyes of God, it's as if it was the first time. Man, think about the burden that could be lifted if you understood what I'm saying. Each time that you sin against God, through the grace that we have in Christ, it is in the eyes of God as if it was the very first time. 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us that love keeps no record of wrongs. God does not have a journal in heaven where he is continually revisiting those sins that you choose to revisit because you can't accept his mercy. God does not choose to keep a tally of your repeated offenses. Jeremiah 31 verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So here's the definition of forgiveness. God will remember our sins no more. Now that does not mean that he cannot remember. God knows all things. What it means is that God chooses not to count our repeated sins against us. Each time we sin, the other ones don't play a part. They're not connected. Vodi Bakum said forgiveness does not mean that God forgets the offense, but that in spite of the memory, one erases the debt. We look at Abraham making the same mistake twice, and we think he's a total dummy. And of course, God remembered that Abraham made this mistake back in Egypt. It's recorded in the text for us, so it's not as if God forgot. But God, in his great mercy, when he forgives, he chooses to treat each sin as if it was, in fact, the very first sin. We're given a clean slate. And we're given that clean slate for a purpose so that we can set our sights anew on righteousness, so that we can be fresh as we, again, pick up our cross to follow Jesus, so that we can be unburdened from the past as we set our hearts on pursuing Christ in righteousness, so that we can seek greater holiness without our former sins weighing us down. God remembers all of our sin, but in love he chooses not to count it against us because Christ has paid for it all.